Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. That song isn't really a plea, you know. It's a recognition. It's a recognition that we need God, but it's also an understanding that God is here all the time. And it's not up to us to ask for it, it's simply up, for, up to us to recognize it and celebrate it. So let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you so much that you're present with us at all times. That our breathing in and our breathing out and our coming and going are, are no surprises to you, but that you're with us in every moment and every action. We pray today that our minds and hearts might be lifted up and enlightened by your word. May the message that you have for each of us come through loud and clear. May we be present to the changes, the transformation that you're in the business of making in each of our lives. We lift up this hurting and groaning world and know that you're alive and working through millions of people who love you in this world. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I don't know if you remember much about the 80s. I know you don't. But uh, <laughs> most of us do. <laughs> I remember a couple of things. One, I remember having both my children in the 80s. And then I remember going to Oregon Culture Club. For some reason, that stands out of my mind. <laughs> a million. And uh, the other thing that stands out of my mind is how hungry we were in the 80s. And we went through the 80s just hungry people. Why? Because it was at the height of the low-fat craze. That was the diet in the 1980s, where we were literally trying to convince ourselves that food that didn't taste like food was delicious. I mean, it was really something, but it really wasn't. Why, here's a cookie that's not a cookie, and it didn't taste like a cookie. But we thought, here's a cookie. So all I remember is being just starving in the 1980s. And uh, that, to me, is my big memory of it. And then something happened. Something happened in 2004 that revolutionized every American life. And that was Atkins. The Atkins diet in 2004 sprang onto the world. And all of a sudden, everything that we had once been told in the fat-free zone that we couldn't have, and we literally, we would drop dead if we put it in our mouth, all of a sudden, it was all, eat plenty of this list. So burgers and ribs and bacon and pot roast and eggs and cheese were all on that eat list. And boy, did we eat it. It was like the apocalypse of the zombies. We were all of a sudden flesh eaters again. So we were eating everything that was taboo to us. And well, I have to say, it was very liberating. And I remember what food tasted like for the first time since the 1980s. But that's a far different reaction than um, we get from Peter. When God uh, gives Peter a vision in which God lifts the walls that are around those restrictive uh, Jewish dietary laws, and it encourages Peter to eat foods that are forbidden. Now for me, and then, if somebody like God 
said, eat this Snickers bar, I would eat it. Okay, no equivocation about it. Or whatever God wanted me to eat. But Peter had a different take on it. So let's read from the scripture today, from Acts 10. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance, kind of like the 80s. <laughs> he saw the heaven open, and something like a large sheet came down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. In other words, not kosher. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now notice, he didn't kill or eat anything. It was simply told to him to do it, and then he had a great internal battle. Now while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. This is the word of the Lord. You may have felt a few disconnects in that story, and that's simply because the way the, um, that it was connected with different verses was to uh, allow you not to have to go through all the, you know, the hundred verses. But I think the way it was edited leaves you with some questions like, well, where were they after all of that? So what happened in the in-between was the men came, Peter had been told to go with them, he went with them to their house. So a Jew is entering a Gentile house, which is absolutely uh, forbidden. And while he's there, he baptizes Cornelius and his whole family. So that's what happened in between. So he was actually at Cornelius' house. And the text says that three times this voice said to Peter, eat. This, it's all good. 
and three times Peter refuses. It's, it, at first, that's odd to me because it's like, do you say to God, no, God, God told me not to eat that. And so God is speaking to you, and you're still like arguing with God. So it's almost like, it's like you're very confused. I can't eat that. Is it a test? Is God testing me? No, God, I'm, I'm very uh, religious. I can't eat that. And God says, you know, I'm the one that's calling the shots around here. So you can eat this, and then the vision goes away. So all of a sudden we see Peter, maybe we see Peter as a stubborn and hard-headed um, you know, a, a disciple that we've known Peter to be. He's impulsive. You know, he's always saying, well, watch me all over then, Jesus, and cutting off the ear of somebody, and, and on and on it goes. But in order to understand what is really happening here and what's at stake, it's really important that when we're within the story that we're not like uh, the the Westerners who have this wide open religion that we can be tolerant and we're like a majority religion where we can be broad-minded and we can be tolerant. Rather, read it as it was first heard by a minority point of view. These were Jews, a minority of Jews set within the context that was hostile to them and it was a matter of where their Jewishness was being taken and they were giving it away piece by piece, little by little, they were losing their identity. It's like a little bit of pork, a little bit of a pinch of incense, a little bit of intermarriage, and all of a sudden you have a matter of life and death to their own identity as Jews. So everything was slipping away. You know, uh, probably a hundred years ago, maybe less, and maybe in your part, maybe you came from part of the country where it's still true. But there were no, uh, there were nothing was allowed to be open on Sunday morning. Nothing. And you're not going to believe this. No Wednesday night activities were allowed at school because of midweek Bible study and midweek church. So that's the way our culture was that you couldn't, on Sundays, you couldn't go shopping because everything was closed. You certainly couldn't buy alcohol or anything of that nature. And so little piece by piece, the, our identity, those things, those exterior identity markers for us have faded away also. Where now, we have, not only do we have a, a consumer availability of everything on Sunday, but we also have schools, and sports setting up events that are on Sunday mornings. Not just Wednesday nights, but all the way into Sunday mornings. They, the Jews identified and demarcated a faithfulness in the midst of incredible pressure to assimilate. In, 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 in the face of incredible pressure to become just like the, the rest of the population, to drop one's particularities and to become a good citizen of the empire to um, a little pork here and a pinch of incense to the Caesar there. And it won't be long before the faith community becomes obliterated. They're no longer the faith community. And so at that point, the dietary laws, at this point that Peter is living in, in this empire at this time, the dietary laws are one of the sole um, holdouts 
about who they were as Jews. That was the, the sole thing that set them apart from all the other people living in, in that particular time was their dietary laws. And all of a sudden, God is advising Peter to supplant these laws with some other basis for survival and identity. He was actually saying, look, you've got a new identity. And you can guess who that identity is in now. It's not in the Jewish law of restriction, but it's in Jesus Christ. So Peter is being asked at this point to swing the doors wide open to anybody and everybody. To, uh, and, and what is amazing is he's not being asked to swing the doors wide open and demand that they change their behaviors. Notice what God is saying to Peter. Whose behavior is God saying needs to change? The who? Anybody? Yes, absolutely. He's saying your behavior needs to change because the doors are open and we are now talking to a whole new generation of people. We're talking in a very different way and so we have to listen to what's needed and we have to be open to understanding our identity may not be in a certain form or a certain this or a certain that, but our identity has to be in Jesus Christ. That's who our identity is. And then the perfect person to bring this uh, to really to a broader realization, what more perfect person could it be than a person like Cornelius, who not only is a Gentile, but he's a Roman officer soldier, uh, officer. In the, in the Roman army. The occupiers. The, the occupiers. And yet, he's saying, even a Roman Gentile officer can love God. And this Roman officer and Gentile needs to be introduced to the gospel. But he's been touched by God and he's worshipped God and hears God's voice. And so his presence is once more a demonstration of God's intentions towards the whole world and once more a demonstration of Peter's marching orders. These are your marching orders. Now it's interesting because there's a, you know, there's a story in Acts about Peter and Paul kind of getting into getting into a, a tussle of power. And there's not a lot of clarity about what that was about, but there's more of an ancient tradition that says that at that time, Peter was of the mind that people needed to become Jews in order to uh, become Christian. And Paul, who had a, a post-resurrection vision of Jesus, said, no, Jesus has sent me to the Gentiles. But you can see here how God is working, not only through Paul, but also through Peter, to say the gospel has to be opened up. So Cornelius and, and Peter both have a vision, and so we enter the story not just through the Jewish vision, but we enter it through the Gentile vision, which is interesting because it's the Gentile that God goes to first to say, to be a part of the Jew being transformed. And Luke reminds us again that it's not Peter and it's not Cornelius, either one that's controlling the action of the story, but it's actually God 
in control of the action of the story, and that's what we're being reminded of. And Peter doesn't know why he's going, where he's going, because if you notice the text, the text says, get up and go with these men because I've sent them. And it doesn't say anything about Peter going, wait a minute, who are these guys? And what am I supposed to do when I get there? He says nothing. He gets up and he goes. He's, he's done this before with Jesus. Do you remember Jesus saying to him, get up and follow me? And he didn't really ask any questions at the time. He dropped his nets and he went and he followed Jesus. So he's a little bit familiar with this kind of tactic. And he hears God say, get up and go. And he says, I'm going. He trusts the story to work itself out. And, but he's truly baffled at what God is up to with these Gentiles. In, in some of your texts, if you read in your Bible, it'll say Greeks. And that's because they use the word Greek to mean all Gentiles. Anybody but a Jew is called a Greek. So you'll see that in some of your texts. Disciples, we find out, are, are those who at times say, Lord, I don't know what you're up to. I don't know what you're after. But I'm your, I'm your guy. I'm the one. I'll go. Just send me. And as the story unfolds, pay attention to the way it shuttles back and forth. It shuttles back and forth from Peter to Cornelius, back to Peter and then to Cornelius. Both men have visions. Both men give speeches. And Luke is trying to highlight the dual nature of what is happening. Is this a story about the conversion of a Gentile or the conversion of an apostle? Well, actually what's happening is there, it's a story about the, the necessary, the necessary uh, task that Cornelius and Peter both need changed if God's mission is to go forward. Both of them need changed if the mission is supposed to go forward. And then we come to what's called Peter's sermon. This is the most incredible moment in Peter's, uh, I, I think, whole career. Because Peter starts out like this. He says, I know now. I know now that God shows no partiality. That's really something for this disciple, this one who had witnessed and walked alongside Jesus and, and who had been a part of all of them arguing about who is Jesus' favorite and been through all of that kind of disciple adolescence. And they had grown up to mature men, and, G and Paul was still being, and Peter was still being impulsive, but Jesus was, you know, just alongside him. And then now Peter opens his mouth and he says, "Now I know. Now I know that God shows no partiality." And then the speech follows the outline. For any of you who studies Acts, there's an outline that that it follows. It's proclamations scripture proof, and then a summons to repentance over and over again in Acts. That's how it plays itself out. But God, in this particular text, says God doesn't look and judge you by your appearance. God doesn't play favorites. God shows no partiality. And you know, I wonder if you can hear and you can appreciate how upsetting that is to the insiders. How upsetting are you to find out that there are some types of people that might be welcome into the Christian circle. You, have, you kind of have to pay attention to that. We can't always look at it from a distance and say, what was the pro 
problem. Well, we're Gentiles, so there was no problem for us. But there was plenty of problem when people had followed strict rules for thousands of years in order to be God's chosen people. All of a sudden, what? Everybody gets in? It's not fair. God loves everybody, and everybody, and God is in charge of eternal destination, and there's nothing that we can say or do. We can't earn it, and we can't jeopardize it. That's a big, that's a lot to swallow. You, you mean it's not all about rules for me if I live up to them or I don't live up to them? That's what determines everything? So I wonder how hard it is for those of us who have suffered in spite of and because of this partiality that, and still believe. I mean, you can hear maybe these ancient people and people throughout generations, and maybe you can hear it today. Don't, doesn't my behavior and practices get me some kind of leverage with God? Doesn't God love me more when I act better, when I'm nicer? Don't I get to get in line with the winning lottery ticket or upgrade it the year after? What's in it for me? And there's, there lies the whole problem. Is when we feel that God judges us on our merit, then we feel like we're in control of our own salvation. That we're in the driver's seat. That we can determine, and not only can we determine our salvation, we can look at others and determine theirs. And that makes us feel even better. We get to judge who's in and who's out. It's not an easy word to hear. Not at all. But throughout Acts, step by step, laying scriptural proof over scriptural proof, gradually edging us out of Jerusalem and into Samaria and then into Joppa, the, the converted Samaritans all of a sudden. And then there's the Ethiopian that's, that's converted. Lucas brought us face to face with with this Roman soldier so that we can feel the full blast of the gospel face to face with something that was unheard of that this Roman occupier, this enemy of the Jew this Gentile enemy of the Jew loved God and God loved him so that we might know the reluctance of the disciples to be in the situation they're in. So that we might know how long and how painful was their journey to get from that exclusiveness to the understanding that God showed no partiality. And now they're the bearers of that gospel to the whole world. And you finally realize the full and frightening implications of the gospel, that God shows no partiality. And when will we understand that? That all are welcome into God's kingdom. And, and this is the way it is sometimes in the church. And this is, it's played itself out historically throughout time. If Jesus Christ is Lord, if Jesus Christ is Lord, then the church has the adventurous task of penetrating new areas of lordship. There is no area out there that Christ is not lord of if God shows no partiality, of expecting new surprises and new implications of the gospel. If we were to be on that rooftop today, what would be in that sheet that God brings down on our roof? I might say not what would be in it, but who would be in it? 
in that shade. That before, no, that's taboo, and now it's like, no, no partiality. I'm not sure. But we do know that none of these things can be explained on any basis other than that our Lord has shown us something that was impossible for us to have seen or understood on our own. You know, over this past century, the church has seen that spirit of inclusivity blow through the church with every generation. First, we have, we have the settlement in 1640. 1640, the first Presbyterian settlement. You know when the first African-American Presbyterian minister was ordained? 1810. Took a while, but that sheet came down, and we saw, and so the first black American was ordained in 1810. You know when the first woman was ordained? 1956. Took a while, but that sheet came down. There have been over and over and over again things that we thought were hard and fast gospel break apart, and we soon see that it wasn't hard and fast. It was the low-fat diet. It was air. And it, it didn't feed us. And the sheet came down, and who was in it? Any doubts about the validity of Peter's new insight into the impartiality of the gospel are satisfied by the eruption of the spirit which descends on Cornelius and his family when they're baptized. This is confirmation of Peter's claims that the author of this plot is God because who could forbid baptism after the Holy Spirit has already come down to be with people? Who, which one of us is going to say, no, they can't be baptized? The wind of the Spirit has again blown where it wills. And don't you wonder, what is the Spirit blowing through us today? What is that, who is in that sheet that's coming down? What are the barriers that we put up, not God, that we put up between people, between, uh, between ideologies and, and theologies and whatever ology you want? that we have used those to segregate ourselves, that those things need to come down. And the church has to pay attention to where the spirit moves. The spirit's gonna go places we would, don't wanna go. But if we go, it's the right of a lifetime. I guarantee you it is. So when we look at this particular scripture, it's important for us to understand that this is not a scripture about dietary restrictions. It's not just about what we put on the table. This scripture is about who we invite to the table. It's really about the unclean and the clean and who is welcome at the table. And uh, when we have our uh, communion service and we stand up here and we say, who's welcome to this table? We say, all are welcome at this table. This table has no fences, which they did at one time have fences around the communion table. And only certain people could come to the table. Now, you're not going to like this, but only if your pledge was paid up could you come to the communion table. <laughs> we don't do that anymore, although it might not be a bad idea. <laughs> but we don't do that anymore. We don't put fences up. We say, all are welcome. So I want you to think this week about that sheet. Think about in your own mind and heart who and what 
is in your sheet that comes down that you think or you suspect might just be of your own making and not of God's will. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you that you remind us time and time again, not just in the way our heart feels, but also in the way our mind uh, is able to apprehend and the way our heart is changed by your word, by the stories of scripture of those who have gone before us, by the ancient telling of the way you interact with us as human beings, the release that you have given us, that you are a God of liberation and freedom, and that we are a church that must be changing and always changing. We have to look at ourselves and we have to say, what do we do to keep people out? And then we have to preach the gospel to those very same people. So thank you, God. We pray that you might bless us with a sense of urgency and what there is at stake in the world today. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.